Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 26, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we have some uh, we have some housekeeping announcements. Not really housekeeping is not quite the right way to put it. But um, uh, Noah Rothman is departing uh, the commentary family. Not departing the family, but Noah Noah is. I hope not. Moving on. <laughs> no, no, we're that, not I mean, kicking you out. You'll always family. be in the family. But uh, Noah is moving on to um, to a new post at uh, at National Review, uh, starting mid February. Um, and I should say that uh, this podcast exists entirely because of Noah. Uh, Noah, you came on to commentary in 2013, 2015, and you said we should really be doing a podcast. And I said, no, podcasts all sound amateurish, and I really don't like, you know, it's very important to me that commentary produce things that are of the highest technical and logistical quality and i don't want to do something that seems second rate and you got over it (laughs) no so then we said so that was like okay well we'll try but here's here's how we're going to try this is literally what i said Uh, we're going to do this as long as it costs no money and we put no work (laughs) into it (laughs) so Um, far so good Right. So what did that mean? No money, no work into it. So it meant that basically we weren't going to invest in any equipment. We weren't going to promote it with money. We weren't, we were just, and we weren't going to worry over it and have meetings about it and write intros and write outros and all this. We were just going to sit down and have a conversation and see where it went. And we did it twice a week for almost four years, right? Was it four years? It might have been. It was four years because we started okay. daily in 2020. We started in 2016. Right. So we started in 2016. So we did it almost you know, that way. And, and, and then the then the pandemic hit. And uh, I said uh, every now and then we would do a special emergency podcast if there was some big news event or something like that. Maybe we did it two or three times over the course of the years. And then I said, why don't we treat this like nightline uh when the uh when the iranian hostages were taken like we'll do a we'll we'll just do it every day we'll sort of do an update on where we are with covid and everything every day uh the podcast that by this time gotten reasonably popular i mean we we had we had a following you know we had like i don't know 10,000 people listening maybe a little more you know to each podcast and uh, again, we never promoted it. We never did anything to sell it. We just, it was just there. Um, and uh, in the entire course of time that we've done this, we invested a little money in putting up an, an office, a wall uh, in a certain place in order to have a special podcast studio. That was a couple thousand dollars. And we bought microphones and a soundboard. And that was a another couple thousand dollars and that's really it 
And then we had to do this all remote because, of course, no one was allowed to go into the office and we were all going to kill each other with our diseases and our horrible, infectious, aerosolized surfaces and whatever. And then we just started to do it. And it is it was totally a supply side thing. We just started doing it every day. We should note it was more it was uh, largely for our own mental health as well. It wasn't. (laughs) I mean, yes, it's a public service, but it was great to just we sat down every morning and just talked about where we all were day in, day out. Yeah. And in three months time, the audience for the podcast had tripled. And then it tripled again. It's not hasn't been at that level really, you know, since the worst of of, of COVID, but um, it was a transformational uh, experience. Noah has produced the podcast since we started. He is the one who records it. He mixes it. He, you know, he edits things out when we need to edit out me slandering people mostly. And, um, and so, uh, uh, you know, it is, uh, so th- this podcast exists because of Noah. And so it's a very bittersweet thing that he is, uh, moving on to pastures. He obviously thinks are, are, um, are, are at least as green or, or differently green, but interestingly green. But can he but, be like um, our special guest star who like, you know, in the great sitcoms where they bring back the much beloved star from earlier seasons, hopefully Noah can come. I'll be like the yeah. Johnny guest who there gets to stay on the couch through the next guest. That's right. right. Yeah. Or <laughs> yes. Or yeah. You're like, you're like when now I'm going to do the old guy thing. So when Don Knotts became a big star and left the Andy Griffith show, he would come back every, every now and then, uh, because his character, uh, Barney Fife, had become a, a a real cop in the city of Mount Pilot down the road, and he was no longer just you know Andy's uh, sort of like officious uh, uh, deputy. So so you can be our you can be our officer, uh, or Sergeant Barney Fife, or we get a different note. Someone else named Noah, like. Uh... Like you know, we go from you know Dick 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 York Dick Sergeant. <laughs> oh, very good. Yes. Yes. Oh no, no, no we'll weird switcheroo. Yes. No, but which Noah style? Noah no. Jones. Yeah, exactly. they'll never know yeah. it. They'll never know. Yeah, no one will ever know. That's right. No one will ever know. It's uh, it's really it's really amazing how that happens. Um. Anyway, so uh, we're not saying goodbye today because we're Noah's going to be here for another couple weeks. Uh, we'll be making an announcement about how we're going to do things, uh, and who you know who might be on in Noah's stead uh, in due course. But uh, congratulations, we'll miss you, and uh, we will of course read you with as much profit at National Review as we have read you at Commentary. Thank you, sir. I won't say my goodbyes until my goodbyes are right. appropriate because we got a couple of few weeks actually, not until mid February, but um, yeah. As you know, it's been the professional privilege of my lifetime to be here and to play a small role in this magazine. Well, let's try to figure out what the professional privilege of your lifetime has to cook up today, because mm. we got a little, you know little scraps and bits and pieces of things. Um, apparently, the uh, the the first uh, uh, is it the fourth quarter GDP numbers are out and they're they're okay. Um, uh, they're more than okay. It's almost 3% uh, growth in the fourth quarter. Um, and uh, this raises the interesting this interesting issue, which is that somehow everybody's been sitting around waiting for another economic shoe to drop in the form of a recession. And we had something that technically, 
technically seemed to be measuring as a recession earlier this year, but but since there was no since job growth uh, didn't uh, you know since people didn't seem to be suffering except from inflation, which what had nothing to do with the with the GDP number, uh, it really didn't feel like a recession and that's what matters you know i mean you can measure it technically or say technically it is or it isn't but uh, a friend of mine our friend david bonson told me the other day that there's almost no way that when the national bureau of economic research actually makes the official declaration about what went on in 2022 that it will say that it was a recession because there simply wasn't enough corporate profits didn't decline job growth didn't decline um uh, overall output did that's what a recession is but it's a very very strange kind of recession but we're we're in theory supposed to have another one we're supposed to go into one at some po- point this year but at some point we're going to have to see uh pain you know it's going to have to matter uh otherwise it's complicated that that even something that seems to be measured as a as a decline in output doesn't really have the kind of effect that you know would have 40 years ago. Anybody have any thoughts about this? None of us being economists. And uh, it seems like everybody who's for, was forecasting a recession in 2023 not too long ago is kind of backing off of it. They they seem to be a little less secure in that in the idea that there will be um reduced growth to the point where we can call it a recession, although we should have been calling what happened in 2022 a recession because that's what we always called a recession when you had two quarters of negative growth all of a sudden we have a new definition of it but yeah 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 i get it it's complicated and maybe that's fair um but perhaps you know there is no economic downturn inflation is is being reined in slowly but appreciably you can feel its effects and economic growth is what it is and Joe Biden's riding high, and we're about to come into a presidential election year where Republicans are just an absolute mess. Democratic fortunes are turning around. But we are seeing some layoffs in certain industries, the tech industry, media industry. There are some industries that actually tend to nurture the the sort of left-leaning cultural bubble where people are actually losing their jobs. I'll be curious to see how that changes the tenor and tone of the coverage of the economy. Eggs are super expensive. We eat a lot of eggs in my household. So I notice it when the eggs get really, really expensive. But you're right that some of the other inflationary pressures are ever so slightly easing, which is a good sign. I mean, it's very uh, shocking to me because the the people who have sort of explained this to me or tried to explain this to me and people who, who know a whole lot more ab- about this than I do have framed the coming recession as as almost a sort of mathematical certainty that this this sort of has to happen um uh by by virtue of some 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 sort of law that that balances everything out well inflation i mean that's just the effect of rate hikes the intended effect of rate hikes right so but so if it if it doesn't in fact happen what 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 has changed here? Another thing that doesn't work the way it used We're to. Right, or exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, that's an interesting point because what what's happening is that um, we have standard, old-fashioned measures of the economy, and those measures may be inaccurate. I mean, a lot of people think they're inaccurate, and I mean, for example, again, not anything I can really explain, but. Um, uh, there is a housing costs figure in the overall 
analysis of the U.S. economy quarter by quarter uh, involving rents and imputed rents and things like that, that people think is just wrong or it's wildly outdated and it doesn't, what it measures, it doesn't really measure. And we also have this, the economy is globalized in a way it never was in the 20th century. And we're still kind of using terminology and things that, that suggest that there is a kind of domestic market that is, you know, a, a balance of forces within the United States, as opposed to this incredibly complicated series of supply chains, manufacture distributions, sales points, all of that, and that and that we just actually haven't gotten to the point where we can adequately and properly measure what the economy is doing. We've been had we've had ten or twelve years of these arguments about the measurement of unemployment how bad the measurements of unemployment are, which you know they are because every month they're revised and sometimes they're revised by 50%. And something that means that however these measurements are, whatever these measurements are doing, they're not working well. And I think that's also true of, of GDP. So that is in funny way. It is like nothing is working, but it's nothing is working because we haven't innovated properly where there isn't a proper ability to measure the nature of the world economy and the American economy and its, and its interplay. Um, and so, you know, people are flying blind. Maybe it doesn't even matter. I mean, again, our, my friend Dave, Dave said, look, you know, it's a recession, you know, a recession is a real problem when it hurts people. And people are worried about it and they're frightened and they're frightened about losing their jobs and not getting another job, which is the main thing that is a danger to people in a recession. And if we're showing, you know, job growth and like vague, massive numbers of job vacancies and things like that, obviously that is not an existential concern for the American, at least at the moment. And so we're, we're in a, we're flying blind because all of this is good and this you know this is all part and parcel of the world in which you know in the last 40 years we've the you know the number of people living in poverty on the planet earth has has declined by a billion and a half another people who now are not living subsistence or starvation lives you know has has declined by this startling number so Ramesh Panuru has a piece in the Washington Post that I thought was really interesting <laughs> insofar as he's talking about the debt limit and the fight over it and his take, which I thought was really uh, pretty clever and and sharp witted was that he's he's nervous about it now because no one else is all of Washington left, right, center is 100 percent sure we're going to raise the debt limit. There's going to be a lot of brinksmanship. Everyone's going to do a dance, but we've done it before. We're going to do it again. And the, but then he goes through the order of battle and describes it as a battle in terms that I hadn't thought about it uh, in that way, because everybody is has different mythologies about, for example, 2011, the 2011 debt ceiling fight. Republicans thought they got to win. Democrats thought Republicans got to win. And they've resolved to make sure that never happens again. Um, not nobody understands what their terms are. Nobody understands what their forces are. Nobody understands what the order of battle is. And everybody wants to test it out. And so they'll get to the edge, surely. But 
yeah, they'll go. They could totally go over, which would have tremendous deleterious economic impacts. The, well, it, the, it, it, the water would like this, like like an incoming tsunami. The water out of the credit market just recedes. All of a sudden, there's a debt crisis. All of a sudden, markets collapse. And yeah, that has a, a profound impact on the economy and could have a profound impact on the economy for eighteen months, twenty four months. Well, and the the focus on you know, just how chaotic the the Republican House Republicans are right now has all has detracted a bit from the the unusually obstinate stance that Biden has taken with regard to negotiating with the House. The House is now under the con- very thin uh, majority control of Republicans and whether or not he likes any of them, which obviously he doesn't, he thinks they're all ultra MAGA. He's supposed to negotiate with them. And he has already he's he's been incredibly stubborn and just said, no, I'm not negotiating with it. Uh, uh, no hostage shaking. That's I'm not the Democratic do line. They, they do right. believe that Republicans got an unearned win out of them in 2011. Right. They don't have they don't have the authority to to justify giving them anything this time around. And they don't want to reward, quote, hostage takers, which they really genuinely believe Republicans to be. So they're going to go to the edge just and Republicans are absolutely willing to go over the edge. You can't look at this Republican Party and say they're unwilling to take a sledgehammer to the foundations of the system here. They'll do it. But there's some Democrats who also want the Democrats to be the adults in the room here. Right. There there are definitely some people who I think uh, and wouldn't go as extreme as even Biden's rhetoric so far has been. Now, maybe that's the opening gambit for Biden to look like I'm not going to negotiate with terrorists, but. It's not good for how this process needs to work out uh, and not get to the limit, as you say, Noah, if if the if both sides have already staked out an extremist position. It's really not that crazy for an incoming Absolutely new not. majority to say, let's talk about out of control spending. That's no, we should a totally say, and normal should, thing. <laughs> and I wrote about this yesterday. And I should say that this hostage taker paradigm that they've talked themselves into is is so insulting and, and a hideous misreading of the American political system. They're using the leverage they secured from voters to seek a negotiated compromise on spending. There's nothing unreasonable about that. There's nothing weird about that or abnormal about that. That's how this sort of thing works. And when Democrats use the exact same leverage they have to, for example, scuttle a veterans affairs bill, which they did, stop funding for the American intelligence apparatus, which they did to secure totally unrelated concessions from the Republican majority, that's just smart politics. It's not hostage taking. It's not the functional equivalent of a terrorist attack on the United States. So they've talked themselves into some weird uh, cognitive cul-de-sacs too well they're only cognitive cul-de-sacs if they're called on it and if people are made aware and so you're making them aware but you know that the mainstream media isn't going to make them aware there's also the uh interesting cross-current challenge of what happens when the debt ceiling crisis emerges when the extraordinary measures taken by the treasury department to continue you know, to shift money from here to there and the other place in order to, you know, keep keep the country solvent when that comes to an end. Uh, there is clearly a voting majority in the House of Representatives to raise the debt ceiling. It is just the challenge of Kevin McCarthy's speakership because he would have to include Democratic, but he would have to count Democratic votes and five Republican votes and get the debt ceiling raised. And uh, and they, you know, will he do that in order to preserve the country's, you know, uh, position, uh, you know, in the world economy and stave off a disaster? If that means that, you know, his truculent uh, 2019 people who voted against him, people decide they want to 
spike his speakership. Now, you can also see a situation in which he goes to them and says, look, fellas, you know, we have I know you want to. You want to make a stand here. I will let you make a stand here. You make a stand. We'll do it for 48 hours. And then I'm going to call a vote and the Democrats are going to vote for it. And, you know, every suburban Republican around around, you know, New York City will vote for it and we'll pass the debt ceiling increase. And um, and you can say you where everybody gets a win here because you don't really want to go down this road. You think you do, but you really don't. You want to be we're going to go into a massive recession if you do this. <clears throat> we're going to get blamed. Take your stand. You'll have a symbolic stand. We'll pass the debt ceiling. If he can do that, then we will achieve some kind of a, you know, a, a, a perfect kabuki play here. Here's their latest frustration with Republicans is they won't say what spending cuts they want. Well, of course they won't say what spending cuts they want. This is not a public negotiation. The fastest way to blow this up is to make it a public negotiation. Some have even said what it is they want. I mean, honest people I mean, yeah, are saying that's true, and that's actually really, on, that's a good right? point. Somehow. We really have to consider raising the retirement age for Social Security, which is Nancy <clears throat> Mace has a plan. Yeah, there are yeah. plans, but I mean that fix that one fix. If you took you know seven years and you raised the retirement rate retirement age from sixty five to sixty seven in Social Security, you get very close to retiring this as a as this annual problem but there is this idea you can't touch it trump yelled at them for saying they were going to touch social security none of that of course touches social security for anybody who currently gets social security or who is in like on the you know on the flight path to getting social security it would it would mature at some point further down the road and you know there's that classic thing about social security which is that Bismarck, who created the first social security system in Germany, set the age at 65 because the, um, uh, what do you call it? The median age of death, I don't, what, what, I'm trying to remember the, the term, which is eluding me, was 62. So you got, you, got, you got social security if you outlived, you know, your expected time of death. So he already created the conditions under which social security could not be a runaway policy until such time as we introduced it. And then we had this incredible, um, you know, series of medical advances that meant that people live into their seventies and eighties and nineties and instantly created this problem. If people had known that that was going to be what it was going to be like in 1935, they would have set the retirement age at 70 and not at 65. And then people also, started. Also, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And then people started having fewer kids, so there was the less, less money, money to to to, right. to go in. Yeah. You know. I mean, I don't I mean, even other, know if this yeah. is true of Generation X, but for my elder millennial status, precisely no one of my age is going to be shocked to learn that the retirement age is going up, and you're not getting Social Security at yeah, sixty-five. Right. We 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 grew up with that I as assume. a baked-in yes. assumption. I think that's true of a lot of Gen X too. I mean, it, it no, feeds into our true. general cynicism, but yeah, the assumption that we're going to see a dime from social security banished long ago. <laughs> but I mean, it's not even that we'll see a dime from social security. You know, the whole point is that people get way more out of social security than they put in. Anyway, if you yes. get four years of social security in the United States after the age of 65, you're getting very close to how much money you put in over, over your course of your working life. 
And so it's not as though it, it, it isn't just a, a handout. You know, it's not insurance. It's something else. And so, yeah, you may have to limit some of the benefits. But, of course, uh, you don't want to be the party that does that or says that. But Social that, Security so. doesn't come due. Insolvency doesn't come due until the early 2030s. It's Medicare's hospital yeah. insurance fund. That's yeah. the real we're going to get that's going to be a squeaker. Well, that's OK, like so the Met, right. So we should explain if you've seen the tables, if you've seen the the, the way it works, you know, 100 percent of this discretionary spending uh, in the or 100 percent of the federal government's budget by 2028 or something like that, absent any change. Uh, will be eaten up by entitlements, meaning you will either have to see extreme, you know, very serious tax increases to cover everything else the government needs to do like the defense budget and all kinds of other you know you know imposing critical race studies ap courses on the states uh you'd, you'd have to you'd have to raise taxes to do that um or you know or budget cuts like there and and the whole point about these kinds of crises is they'll happen when they happen like it'll just be hi, I'm you know I'm President Ron De Newsom, and I'm standing here in front of you, and the federal government is running out of money in three weeks, and I don't mean it's just running out of money. I mean it's actually running out of money in three weeks. We are you get 100%. your low balance notification. Yeah, from... that's right. yeah, yeah. You're under two hundred dollars. <laughs> your checking account is under two hundred dollars. And, you know, that's basically what people have been waiting for. There is a whole logic theory that says we can't deal with it politically now, so we'll deal with it when it comes, you know, okay, fine. So that's if that's the way the American people are going to be, uh, we'll deal with the crisis when the crisis comes. And there was a fantasy abroad in the land that this was actually sane and sound economic policy. I don't know if people remember in the 1990s, the Time magazine did a cover story called The Committee to Save the World. And it was Robert Rubin, who was the uh, chairman, who was the, excuse me, the Treasury Secretary, Alan Greenspan, uh, the head of the Fed. I can't remember, there were two other people. I can't remember who they were. And the idea was what they had realized through, in the 90s, there were these, there were these spike moments of crisis. There was the uh, Mexican debt bomb. Then there was the Asian currency collapse. And, a, and the idea was they got together when the crisis was imminent and fixed it because there's no way in American politics to make sure that you, you know, to do like preventive maintenance, just not in our bailiwick. So we will be the wise, wise men who get together and fix things when the engine is about to blow up, then we'll put in the oil. You know, we'll do what we can. We'll jury rig it, and then we move on and create growth, and then that 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 solves problems. And that was all really great until you know came the crisis that the committee to save the world couldn't fix, which was the which was the economic meltdown of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. When it's like, you know what, you guys suck. You 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 blinded people to the fact. You know, you, you were doing stuff to pre you were doing preventive maintenance. You were getting the entire world, everybody in America to float the American economy by making it possible for everybody to borrow money at zero percent. And then when the payments actually, you know, when the balloon went, came due and you actually had to pay your do your debt service, the entire world economy melted down. So that was really great. Thanks. 
thanks you guys, you know, very much. But I should have put Keanu Reeves on the committee to save the world. And I feel like it might have had usefulness. But well, he doesn't save the world. He just saves his dog. You know, he just takes vengeance for his dead dog. <laughs> yes, That's but he did he save does. everyone That's on the one bus franchise. in speed. Yes, yeah. let's franchise. talk about speed. Oh, we're talking about two different franchises. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm so I'm franchises. an older. You're a younger Keanu Reeves. I'm yes, older. thank you. <laughs> I'm an older Keanu Reeves. Okay. Um, all Keanu is good Keanu. So right. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. What else should we? Uh, what else? What else do we have to? Uh, by the way, I should say that um, the 2.9 percent rate of growth that I mentioned. Uh, that was just in the fourth quarter. The overall U.S. economy in 2022 grew, in the, according to this preliminary estimate, by 2.1%, which, again, was a lot better than I think people thought when we had two straight quarters of negative growth. But there we are. Okay, Noah, as, uh, Noah where do you want to go? Uh, okay, well, want to talk about committees, retribution? Sure, why not? All right. Um, so... Uh, Republicans are are exacting revenge. That's it. That's what they're doing. Uh, and it's not entirely unjustified. They're trying to keep um folks like Eric Swalwell and uh Adam Schiff and Ilan Omar off committees. Um, <clears throat> now you can take these cases individually. Uh, certainly Swalwell has some uh problems when it comes to his legal exposure with regards to. Uh, his associations and whether he's fit to serve on a committee, for example, like intelligence. Adam because Schiff, he was hanging out with a Chinese spy, just for those who yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Adam hanging Schiff, out under the sheet. And FBI, FBI came and briefed the leadership in the House about how serious this was, a national security I, briefing. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a legitimate issue. I'm less convinced that there's a legitimate issue when it comes to Adam Schiff's uh, capacity to serve on intelligence. I think he's a bomb thrower and an ideologue, but that's no no reason to disqualify you from committee service well he did he did as a, as a mark of his lack of intelligence post a kind of rambling angry uh thing on tiktok, on TikTok. which is a chinese spyware app right but if so, we, yeah mean... but uh, yeah pr- prudence force <laughs> and he lied and, he lied to the public about and, eth- and ethics all of these yeah. things do not disqualify you from service in congress i'm sorry we'd have to empty the building out yes but Elon omar is a different story Ellen Omar was almost censured by her own caucus, should have been censured by her own caucus, uh, for repeated anti-Semitic remarks. She has demonstrated that those anti-Semitic remarks reflect her, her truest beliefs. And that is not an ideological assault on her. If she's denied committee uh, memberships, it's not just because, well, they took it away from Paul Gozer and Marjorie Taylor Greene. So we're doing it to them, too. There's a real reason why you want to keep her off committees, particularly committees like foreign affairs or intelligence or stuff that has to do with our foreign policy. And you had, for example, uh, reporter CNN reporter MJ Lee, who was saying um, that, quote, refusing to allow them to sit on a committee because you have some political or ideological differences, that is, quote, that, that is different from, quote, doing this because somebody has a real ethical or character issue. You know, call repeated anti-semitic remarks a character issue it's definitely a character issue ilan omar is out there saying they quote they hate an african refugee who is muslim having the power to shape policy in this country no they hate you because you hate jews and because you've allowed that manic uh paranoia to color your views of the world and affect how you shape policy in this country 
And that's perfectly legitimate. And to treat it as illegitimate is an insult and an, an effort to bury anti-Semitism. Well, they, they they successfully did it. I mean, Ilhan Omar at the time got her media supporters and and the Democratic Party to paint this as something other than what it was. Um, she sort of won the PR war over this because because look at it now. At the same time, to my understanding, her popularity is waning among her own constituents. Um, yeah, she faced but, a challenger in the yeah. last election. She did. She still triumphed. But like they're, you know, and she certainly does represent a particular view among her constituents. It's not as if she's not promoting her. her I mean, unfortunately, in her district, there are a right. lot of anti-Semitic feelings among her voters. So but also, the, the, I'd also I'd also like to make a pitch. I mean, we're having we're, it's good that we're having this conversation about how it's shameful that a disgusting anti-Semite is being, it's being acting as though, you know, sort of like uh, sidelining her and making her a marginal presence um, in, in one of the country's two legislative bodies isn't anything but a noble act, but let's take the nobility out of this and just say that um, politics says they have to do this. If you're going to make political if you're going to extend your politics into matters like who people in the party that you know you're wants to seat on committees in minority positions by the way being on a committee when you are in a minority in the house is like being on your is like being an orthodox jew on the reform on a reform in a, on the board of a reformed jewish temple your views are of no moment whatsoever you don't get your bills through you don't get your amendments passed maybe you can make a little trouble at a hearing it is a powerless position and so under these circumstances if you're going to play this political game which democrats did where they started to confuse their right with their self-righteousness with righteousness Politics demands that when the balance of power shifts, they get reminded that th there is a kind of, you know, balance of power here in the parties. And, and precedents, that... I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. Go ahead. You, but no, precedents no, beget yeah. be precedents. Yeah. And they set one. And guess what? You can't take it back. This is why I'm very frustrated with all the efforts to, to compel Republicans in the majority to force Representative Santos out. Sorry, yeah. ethics are litigated by voters. He can resign if he's indicted, much less convicted. That would be beholden. That would that would be within precedent. You can censure a representative for that. You can just you can expel a representative for that. It's rare, but it has happened before. But you can't just do it for somebody lying, because then you open up a whole can of worms. How, how many other representatives are we going to expel because they shaded the truth? Right. I mean, this guy's egregious. So it doesn't like matter what, how egregious he is. Yeah. You can't just but set the precedent. Yeah. If you lie, you don't get to serve in Congress. That is not a precedent that's sustainable. No, no. Let them. Right. But I mean, let them set the pre. Like, that's the craziness. Go ahead. Set the precedent. Let's see how fun it is to be in Congress for the rest of your life. You know, you say I had a sandwich on Tuesday and you had it on Wednesday. Oh, boy. You just violated the Santos rule. Right. Can't lie. 
you know, and then who wants to be in Congress at that point, but the least right. ethical, most shameless and egregious among us. Right. I, well, I wait, aren't, aren't we yeah. watching this on the presidential level with the with the classified documents? Well, OK, so if that's the case, then everybody lies and we know everybody right. lies. And then this kind of shot. Yeah. So so what Santos is being punished for is um, is the is the bald faced, shameless, sheer quantity of lies but i'm not sure that that's if lying is the bad thing then one lie is as bad as a hundred lies i mean okay a little white lie isn't as bad as you know i mean anyway it's a it's a it's a but the point here is that uh politician these guys are being very unwise and hysterical they were unwise and hysterical to do what they did to you know republicans in 2019 because yeah, they think that every it's exceptional that the Republican Party has gone to a place where the Republican Party has gone to. It's not exceptional. These are gatherings of hundreds of people, <clears throat> and there are going to be creeps and unethical people and all of that. And if you create a precedent, yes, as Noah says, so go ahead and ruin the Congress. It's fine. I don't care. What do I care? There was, these things are mutual you know, there's a like mutual assured destruction. My favorite anecdote in this regard was in D.C. when Bob Bork was nominated <clears throat> for uh, the Supreme Court in 1987. And the entire world of the left went after him, you know, back alley abortions, coat hangers, this, that, the other thing. And the Washington City paper, then I believe under the editorship of Jack Schaefer, who was the... Um, who is now the media columnist for uh, Politico and a friend of mine. Um, somebody who worked for him got hold of the video store rental history. Maybe this wasn't Bork or maybe it was Thomas. I don't Anyway, the video store rental history, either of Bob Bork, it wasn't of uh, or Clarence Thomas in uh, Palisades in the neighborhood of Washington. Uh, the video vault or something like that and did an article about how rented Casablanca rented the Godfather got it. it was her funny piece that was Bork but that this was it was, was Bork but it was of course a blatant invasion of his privacy like this is his account it's not you know it's not public he didn't instantly instantly the Washington City Council went into session and passed a bill making it illegal for video stores to release information about what people had rented. And what you should because, know about DC yes. at the time is it had a lot of seedy video rental stores and a lot of city council members who frequented them. <laughs> yeah. And a mayor uh, named Marion Barry. So um, the, it was 24 to 48 hours. Boom, law, that's it. Going to jail if you give any reporter video <laughs> rental records. That is the butte. That is what how politicians are supposed to behave. But they're doing this simply I mean, both as a matter of self protection. And like you're sitting there going, "There's no one worse than Paul Gosar." Well, first of all, Paul Gosar is disgusting, and he should be thrown in the garbage and you know and compacted. But Elon Omar is disgusting too, and she also should be thrown in the garbage and compacted. And I'm sorry, I'm not taking any lessons from you people about how. 
he's worse than she is because he they, ain't worse than she is. But they do the legislative path is something. There's the Santos Act, which you mentioned, which would you know kind of punish people for lying about their backgrounds. But there's also now a Pelosi Act because, uh, you know, good old Nancy and her stock tips, like she's she just she sold a ton of Google stock at a huge profit just before the Justice Department announced it was going to file a lawsuit against Google. And over the years, she's become a multi multi millionaire. S because her husband, of course, she doesn't personally trade the stock. She's not allowed to do that. But weirdly, Paul Pelosi just seems to be a weather vane for knowing when to dump bad stuff right before federal regulators move in or to buy up other stuff right before a boom happens. I mean, it's kind of uncanny. I mean, she's just amazing, Miss Nancy. So like that piece of legislation, I am totally on board with because I'm quite sure there are people on the other side, on the Republican side of the aisle, profiting from their inside knowledge, too. So that I like. That's about ethics across the board. The Santos Act is, as as we discussed, impossible to enforce. The the Democrats don't want to do anything, but they don't want the Republicans to do anything about Santos. Because he's he's there, he's and you could say keeps on giving. Yeah, you could say, look how crazy uh, uh, the, yeah. the, the, this Republican is. He's he's a you know he's a sort of mini Trump, or a sort of in some senses a more exaggerated Trump. Um, and at the same time, you can you can continue to morally shame the Republicans who won't do anything about it. I mean, right. It's a, By it's the way, wonderful... th- this is a great segue moment here because. We, of course, have the story emerging yesterday that Facebook or Meta, I I refuse to call it Meta. Could take Meta, throw it in the garbage and compact it. Call call yourself whatever you like. Your Facebook. Did you just get a garbage okay. compactor? Because I did this not. Metaphor you can't have a, a lot of work and You can't have a garbage compactor in Manhattan. I don't think anybody, does anybody even have them anymore? I have a friend in suburban Maryland who bought a house that had one and she mocked it until she started using it yeah. and she became yeah. a complete convert. But. Yeah, no, I I had one in the 80s, but I get a feeling that they're they like it's not like I had one in the apartment that I rented, like the, the you know, the condo owner and put one in. But I, I feel like it's not you don't have one, Noah, do you? I, do I don't. OK, there was this Any- weird there was a thing like much like quicksand which has disappeared from the national discourse. <laughs> it was a thing where if you wore ties, it would invariably be caught in the garbage compactor and you would be choked to death. Well, that, was that in the that compactor was a, or, in the, or in the disposal? Because we have oh, two the, different... Disposal, no, you're right. Now I'm thinking of two different yeah. things. No, and yeah. I have a fear of the yeah. compactor because I grew way, up I don't on have Star them, Wars. Whatever it is. Remember the yeah. giant garbage compactor? Yeah. They all get stuck in? That's, anyway. Yeah, shout out to John Mulaney for... for the uh, for the Of course, for the quicksand thing. Yes, that was, right. That's his, that is that's his bit. Yeah, it's like it's when he was a kid, he thought the most important threat facing the world was quicksand. My kids asked me about that yesterday. It was like, what what is that mud? Yeah. It's fast mud. Like, yeah. You don't even know. They don't even know, know what it is. I know. These kids today, they don't have hilarious Looney Tunes. I was going to say, because they have were, really educational yeah. cartoons, whereas all our cartoons were violent and ended in death and destruction. So. Right. Anyway, um, so Meta, the Facebook, uh, announces it's going to restore Donald Trump's Facebook. And, of course, Elon Musk has already said that he would restore Trump's Twitter. So Trump will be back on social media. Well, maybe, maybe. There's, can I can I jump in and say Please. he so he didn't get he didn't come back on Twitter. He's okay, still right. using Truth Social. Yeah. 
Um, he needs to be back on Facebook if he's going to run for president again because he needs those ad buys. He needs that. That's that's where all of that advertising money is is well spent for him and was in his previous campaigns. But he's he's in a kind of bind for his business propositions himself because if truth if he stays on Truth Social, that's a kind of ringing endorsement of its of its economic viability, which he keeps claiming it has, and you know that's going to have millions and millions of uh, members soon. Um, if but if he jumps back on Facebook, that's that undermines that business message he's been trying to promote with true social so the question is i mean i assume he'll get back on facebook and instagram particularly facebook where he needs those ad buys for a campaign but that will undermine the viability if it even ever had much of true social so he's got to choose i think he's I'm obligated to give truth social some things first yeah Okay, well, you know, he's sense. obligated. Yeah. He's obligated the way he's right, obligated. Yeah, the way he's obligated to any law regarding classified documents. Well, also. and he could I very mean, he, quickly... his obligations extend as far as he wishes to pursue well, them. Well, and he he could very quickly get booted off of Facebook again because they've put in place post January six a bunch of new regulations about you know if there are moments of national crisis, things you can and can't do, right. their ability to remove people temporarily if they say anything. If he he's allowed to continue to deny the twenty twenty election results, but he cannot undermine future election right. results i mean they really did try to parse it uh, but here's here's my point okay there's all this oh my god is give out blah, blah. who would want trump to be on twitter and facebook more than anybody else in america the democratic party joe biden mm -hmm. yeah joe biden needs trump to be crazy he needs trump to be as crazy as possible that is his path to re-election and if you believe that he's not going to run again, it's the path to anybody's reelection, maybe even more than Biden in a funny way, uh, because um, anyway, so we're in a weird situation in which the banning of Trump from social media was, of course, the desideratum of all good liberal opinion after January 6th. Speaking and, of, yeah. again, I'm being very interrupty. Please. No. Um, but I saw something very uh, welcome from the ACLU, reminding everybody, sorry, responding to Facebook's decision. This is important. Donald Trump is, a, is one of the leading political voices in this country, and the public has an interest in hearing it. And this is the right decision. They're taking no amount, no small amount of crap from the, the lefties who usually tweet out of the ACLU account. I but wish. Uh, I wish. It's I, a I wish I believed that they had a that they had a that they had a pure. You yeah, know, I think they oh, have that, the ulterior motive. Sure. Yeah. but that yeah. one wasn't drafted by the right. people who do social media for the ACLU. Yeah. This came from up up high. I also wonder whether um, Christine, what you say about Trump and Facebook is true. You know, there are declining. Uh, Trump has email lists, you know, with seventy-five million names on them he can go direct to raise money from at a moment's notice. And he already has $160 million in the bank. I don't know. I don't know that he needs Facebook, but that doesn't mean he does. Is not going to want Facebook or that Facebook or that the Trump campaign isn't going to want to do the opposite of what we might think he would do with Facebook, which is to run soft focus, mushy, positive ads about America and Trump and like, and make himself look nicer, not meaner, uh, and you know, try to get back 
you know the sort of the the women who don't like him you know he just like has those you know we're bringing back america you know waving flags have you seen that his email campaigns though and his text campaigns i i I somehow got uh, for my sins got hooked onto like i was getting some of them in a spam folder and i was like what does this actually say i opened it up oh my word i mean it's just no it's 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 astounding it's like someone starts screaming at you (laughs) for something else yeah maybe but But i mean a lot of his base other like Facebook what? now skews older, remember? So Facebook <laughs> is for said, old people. Yeah. Use so- it, use it for the soft. Yeah, use it for the soft sell. Can, can Donald Trump do a soft sell? Yeah. Was, you remember those? I don't even know what that there was were a couple like. of commercials in 2020. You remember one. there was some yeah. film and the with the Greyhound bus and it was like sort of like Paul Simon's all come to look for America. I don't right. know. They're so going, Donald Trump's people you know. can do a soft sell. Yeah. No, but that's what I mean. He I himself. mean is not much for understatement. But I mean his I mean his people. Anyway, I just think that this uh, we're in this uh, funny world in which um in which uh the 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 people who are will most benefit from Trump being back on social media or believe themselves to be a most benefit will be his rivals the people who want to deny him uh, well, the presidency. They've the whole time he's been off they're the ones that have been broadcasting his message nonstop. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's true. They're, they're getting it out there. Yeah. Well, um, uh, what are we to make of the Jimmy Carter had classified documents in planes? Story? Okay. The, the first thing is that this is actually, you know, I'm a, a, quite a critic of technology and the internet, but this is where the internet truly shines. Cause someone, the joke going around when that was revealed was that Jimmy Carter located uh, secret documents in his heart, which was just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but um, first of all, it's, it, it's a weird this is where you start thinking you know what maybe the democrats are not that good at this or like the biden people are stupid because um i think that carter did this to help biden in other words he was like i don't know why everyone's talking about joe biden or that you know like yeah you know even i the purest and noblest of us inadvertently found classified information now as it happens the law that classified all this stuff and said you had to send it to the archives and you couldn't bring it home did not go into effect until after he was left the presidency so in fact we should add pence pence is also pence right but in fact carter did not violate the law because the law hadn't gone into effect yet so why is he going why are they going out and retailing the news that jimmy carter had classified information in his you know in his possession because they're trying to take the heat off Biden. But again, you take the heat off Biden, you take the heat off Trump. And if they, they don't also understand th- that, they seem to still have the delusion that they get to go at Trump for obstruction and and isolate the Trump news from the Biden news. And that is just They also think that the Pence thing, delusional. That the Pence thing sort of muddies the waters and it does on the margins. But it's it was Donald Trump's team. It was Anita Dunn and her husband who decided that their strategy uh, here Biden's was team. to Biden's, Biden's team. team was to position yeah. themselves vis-a-vis Donald Trump. Was to highlight the distinctions between Joe Biden's conduct and Donald Trump's, which have since erased. Yeah, remember all the bullet lists for a week we were getting from the media, the two yeah, columns. Right. Yeah, and, and there are distinctions, particularly how they handled investigators, but the multiple tranches, the federal search of their property, 
I mean, all those distinctions have been erased, but we didn't establish that contrast. You established that contrast. Yeah. And I I think um, Jimmy Carter and whomever else we hear from in the future on this issue, whoever else says, actually, uh, I turned up uh, a folder uh, in my office here. And um, I think it all of it takes the heat off Trump more than it takes the heat off. Biden. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Because, also because it takes the heat off Trump more because, um, first of all, Trump was in real jeopardy. And I think we all now wonder if there's any way he could be in real jeopardy, if that leaves Merrick Garland in a position where he doesn't, you know, where he says, well, we can't indict Biden, but we can indict Trump. Like that's a huge thing, right? That's, not, but also it, it just, once again, he his main argument about American politics is confirmed, right? Which is, I'm down in the muck like everybody else, but I'm the only one who is honest about it. I know that I'm dirty, and you you know it takes a thief to catch a thief, <clears throat> and you know these guys are all dirty and pretending like they're Caesar's wife, and who who can abide that? So every revelation confirms that and and makes people think, yeah, I guess I guess there was a witch hunt when they were when they were going after him. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, we will reconvene tomorrow. uh, And continue to we will uh, we will make the most of Noah's last uh, two weeks with us. I think Noah, we have to have a bingo card. Yeah. Noah has excuse me. Noah has to fill his entire bingo card out. All of his favorite podcast phrases must appear in the next three Uh, weeks. All my verbal crutches. Deeply disappointed. No, I love them. (laughs) Sort of Sotoboche, yeah, sure. Permission (laughs) structure, they're all coming. I'll have to I'll have one clever sentence. But weave them in creatively, yes. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, well, we will be back tomorrow for the first weave. Uh, and for uh, for Abe Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs> <laughs>